Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 38, the book of Revelation, chapter 17, the conclusion. Chapter 17 of Revelation has had our attention now for the third straight week and for very good reason. It is a riddle wrapped up inside a puzzle. But it's a very important riddle. It's important to try and unpack it, especially for followers of Christ. Now I have no doubt that many of the earliest prophecies about the coming of a Messiah must have seemed nearly incomprehensible to the ancient Israelites because the prophet's words sometimes appeared as contradictory if not nonsensical at times. The circumstances seemed impossible to imagine. How could a man also be God? How could a lion also be a lamb? How could death produce life? How could a virgin give birth? No doubt, just like for us, those who knew those prophetic traditions, and later on when they were written down and they read some of them, they must have felt that those prophetic words were more akin to being teased and frustrated, like Samson did with his wedding party guests rather than imparting intelligible information that one could act upon. And yet, centuries later, when those prophecies turned into realities, every detail was proved to be true and accurate. So, keep your expectations in check with what we're about to read about the beast the woman on the beast, the meaning of the seven heads, the meaning of the ten horns, the meaning of the kings and kingdoms they represent. And I promise you that while we may be able to get a pretty good handle on some of it, all will not become clear. Some of it likely won't make any sense until it actually occurs. So, why does God tell us these mysterious things centuries in advance? Because as we've been reading, we learn that in the end, all the trials and tribulations will have been worth it for those who trust in Him. And despite a lost world being led by scientists and the academic elite who keep searching the skies trying to figure out where life came from and how the universe began, and what meaning there is for it all. As God worshippers, we already know the answers. At least the answers to the questions that matter. We even know the outcome and the final chapter of human history and what happens after that. We know where the final day's epicenter of the activities and the events on earth are going to be. We know 
the general characteristics of the most important players that are going to lead the world off the cosmic cliff. But we don't know the year. We don't know the players' names. We don't know all about the geopolitical circumstances and reshuffling that will happen to bring it all about. And we're not going to get all those answers in John's Apocalypse or in the book of Daniel or anywhere else in God's Word. In our desire to know the future, we need to be careful not to become enchanted by some charismatic religious personality who says he or she does know all these things. After all, if the Father has not revealed many of these details to His Son, He's not going to first reveal them to us. So, let's learn what can be known. Or at least, perhaps, cut down the list of possibilities to a little more manageable size. Now, to briefly encapsulate what we discovered last time, the first 11 verses of Revelation chapter 17 introduces to the symbolic image of a woman, a harlot, a prostitute, seated upon a scarlet beast. This beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now both the woman and the beast represent the antithesis of godliness and of the kingdom of heaven and this is communicated to us by giving us examples of their mockery of God and heaven and all that God's ordained. For instance, the woman wears blasphemies on her forehead that is a mockery of the high priest who wears the name of God on his forehead. The beast will ascend upward from the abyss, the abode of evil, rebellious spirits, to the surface of the earth, but our Messiah will descend downward from heaven, the abode of righteous spirits, to the surface of the earth. The woman holds a golden vessel. It's full of filth and obscenity. She holds it in her hand. As God sends forth his righteous wrath and fury from holy golden vessels taken directly from God's heavenly sanctuary carried by the hands of angels. Now John was astounded by all of this. He was astounded by what he saw. Not in the sense of fear and trepidation, but rather he was astounded in the sense of being greatly impressed and awed. So much so that an interpreting angel questioned John as to why he's so bedazzled at this incredible sight. And the angel goes on to tell John the truth behind this grand deception that he sees. I will tell you the hidden meaning of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that is carrying her, says the angel. John thought one thing, but it's actually something else. But as we were just beginning to realize last week, this hidden meaning 
stays rather hidden, even in the angel's cryptic explanation of it all. Now what John is told would take much too long for us to review today, but briefly the angel says that the beast was, now is not, and will come again later. Notice, once again, the mockery of God here. I mean, still in our time, we can correctly say the Messiah was, now is not, and will come again later. So John is saying that what or who the beast represents has existed historically on earth in the past. But now it's no longer on the earth. In John's day, it was no longer on the earth. Although it will return at an undetermined later time. Now next, the angel gives the meaning of the seven heads, saying they are seven mountains or hills on which this woman, this harlot, is sitting. However, they are also seven kings. And of these, five have fallen, meaning they existed in the historical past. One exists right now in John's day. One will come in the future. But the seven kings and or kingdoms explanation is then amended in verse 11 when the angel tells John that there will be an eighth king or kingdom that is related to the seventh. Now this statement, plus what comes next at about the meaning of the ten horns, which we're going to cover today, is the heart of end times Bible prophecy, and from it has come a number of doctrines and beliefs about those end times kings and, and, and kingdoms. Now before I remind you what I have concluded from this information, I, I want you to look with me at... Um, Chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. Take a look at it. It depends on your Bible version uh, what we're going to see. And it's either entirely contained in verse 9 or it spills over into verse 10. And what we're going to do, we're going to compare just a few different Bible translations that might just help us to understand the meaning of this passage in a way that better fits with what surrounds it. Okay, so our complete Jewish Bible says this about Revelation 17, 9 and 10. It says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting. They are also seven kings. Five has fallen, one is living now, the other is yet to come, and when he does come he must remain only a little while. However, if we look at the reliable King James Version, we read something slightly different. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is not, the other is yet to come, and when he cometh he must continue a short time. Then there's the Young's literal translation, by the way, which is good uh, to consult to get the most literal word-for-word translation without regard for whether it makes good sense in English. Here it is. Here is the mind that is having wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman doth sit, and there are seven kings. The five did fall, the one is, the other did not yet come, and when he may come, it behooveth him to remain a little time. Now, the few words that might hold a key to help us understand a little bit better is where the complete Jewish Bible, as well as several other good translations, says about those seven heads, it says, they, seven heads, they are seven kings. But in the complete, uh, rather, uh, rather the King James Version and in the Young's Literal Translation and other equally good translation, it says, there are seven kings. They versus there. So the issue is that in the complete Jewish Bible translation, it makes the seven mountains, symbolic seven mountains, both seven kingdoms and seven kings. And then the five have fallen, one living now, another yet to come, seems to refer only to kings. So we have some Bible scholars thinking that these Kings, these seven kings are either seven Roman emperors or seven Catholic popes. But by rendering it, there are seven kings, it is like merely saying that in addition to seven kingdoms, there are also seven kings existing. And this opens the door to the possibility that the five fallen, one living now, another yet to come, are not referring to kings, but rather to kingdoms. Or it could be that we're being told that for each kingdom there's a specific king we're to connect to it. I mean, just remember, among, that's among the many kings that any of these kingdoms would have had over time. Thus, in one setting, we should be looking for seven kingdoms and then an eighth kingdom that comes from the seventh one. In another setting, we should be looking for seven kings and then an eighth king, which comes from the seventh king. In other words, while the kings and kingdoms are interrelated in some way, nonetheless, they are and can be examined as separate issues. The kings versus the kingdoms. Now last week I told you that I have come to the conclusion that the seventh kingdom is the Ottoman Empire and Islamic Empire that took over the final remnants of the Roman Empire. And when I say Roman Empire, please catch this. I mean the Eastern Roman Empire because in the third century the Roman Empire had been intentionally divided into two empires with two emperors and two governments with two capitals because it had gotten so big that it became impossible for one emperor and one government to oversee it all. Now the Western Roman Empire remained governed from Rome until it dissolved late in the 5th century. But the Eastern Roman Empire, well, that continued on from its capital in what was then called Byzantium. Today that's called Istanbul, Turkey. So historians 
have called the Eastern Roman Empire the Byzantine Empire. Now, that's kind of confusing to the average non-historian. That's just something academics love to do. But in practice and reality, it was nothing more than a continuation of the Roman Empire by another name. And the Byzantine, the Roman, the Eastern Roman Empire ended only in the mid-1400s. And it was taken over by an Islamic Empire that has been labeled by historians as the Ottoman Empire. So, if that seventh kingdom was, as I think it is, Islamic, and the eighth is going to be like it, we're told, then my conclusion is that the eighth kingdom will also, in some way, be oriented towards Islam. Now, I say oriented towards because even with the Ottoman Empire, there were many Christian enclaves. It worked the same way in the Roman Empire, the sixth kingdom that came and went, that rather early on became oriented towards Christianity. Yet many enclaves of various pagan religions also remained in it. And to connect the dots, the Antichrist would likely have some connection to Islam even if he is not a Muslim. It may be, for instance, that he'll promote the Islamic religion and governments and use them to achieve his purposes. And we're going to talk more about that in later lessons. But I caution once again, my conclusion is from our current vantage point in history. It is possible that by the time the Antichrist actually arrives, the geopolitical and the religious realities of the world may have radically shifted again. Now, I'm going to proceed now to verse 12, chapter 17, about the ten horns and their meaning. And I want to show you one way in which the number and the purpose of those horns of the beast connects with the number and purpose of the kingdoms that are represented by the seven heads. So please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And if you have a complete Jewish Bible, you'll find it on page 1548. Revelation 17, starting at verse 12. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet begun to rule, but they receive power as kings for one hour along with the beast. They have one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and those who are called, chosen, and faithful will overcome along with Him. Then He said to me, Now the waters that you saw, where the whore is sitting, 
They are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. Now as for the ten horns that you saw and the beast, they will hate the whore. They will bring her to ruin, leave her naked, eat her flesh, and consume her with fire. For God put it in their hearts to do what will fulfill his purpose, that is, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until God's words have accomplished their intent. And the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Okay. Notice how the ten horns are unequivocally ten kings. It says so. There's no ambiguity. There's no dual nature of the horns like there is with those seven heads that symbolizes seven mountains that can indicate kings or kingdoms or perhaps both. So these ten kings, the ten horns, these ten kings are said to receive their power, their authority as heads of state, for one hour. And as we've discussed in other settings, to say for one hour, that's meant as an expression. It simply means for a relatively short time. It is like me saying to someone, wait a minute. As my wife can well attest, rarely does that mean 60 seconds. For one hour means that whatever is the normal and usual period of time that we might think something ought to exist, it's cut short. And by saying that this includes the beast means the kings will receive their power at about the same time as the beast. And in the same way that the kings will not last as long as one might expect, neither will the beast. The fate of the kings, these ten kings, the ten horns, is therefore intertwined with that of the beast. So now verse 13 is key because it speaks of this relationship between these kings and the beast. And we learn that the kings will hand over their authority to the beast. And this is because they are single-minded in purpose. Now don't, no doubt they will not know. These ten kings will not know all that the beast intends. And will learn that shortly. Now, while I don't believe that the European Union is or is even representative of those ten kings and their coalition, I do think it offers us a real good illustration of what's going to happen in the future and why it will happen when these ten kings of Revelation rule along with the beast so I think it's kind of worth examining it for a minute. See, the European has expanded its member nations well beyond the original six, and now they, today it numbers almost 30. They would like that number to grow even larger under the right circumstances. And yet, 
some of the early member nations are growing dissatisfied with the Union, and so are considering leaving it. England has already voted to leave, and they are going through a massive political upheaval in this divorce process. Now the original purpose of the EU is clear and it is noble. It was an attempt to end the string of catastrophic intra-European wars that happened every few decades that just included massive suffering and loss of life. The way to achieve this was to set up a sort of federal government above that of each member nation. This is called the European Union and it has its own capital in Brussels. Now their first goal was to make the European nation members just a large trading block which also allowed for easy movement of people and goods across borders without all the expensive tariffs and paperwork and different standards uh, by each nation or a huge bureaucracy to control it all. Even a new currency called the Euro was introduced to end issues of having to deal with exchange rate haggles over each member nation's currency value. The system has generally worked well enough that other nations see the advantage of being part of the Union and have happily joined it. However, the EU government that sits above the governments of each member nation has slowly and steadily given itself more power and so has intervened more aggressively into each nation's affairs. An EU court system was established that can increasingly override each member nation's justice system. The motto of the EU government is an even greater union. That's their motto. What does that mean? In other words, it's clear that in the end they want to extinguish most, if not all, national sovereignty and become a United States of Europe. And just to put an exclamation point on that motto, recently this massive influx of illegal aliens from the Middle East and Africa that has overwhelmed Europe became the sole province of the EU according to their reading of the EU treaty. Therefore, each member nation has nearly no say in who is admitted to their country. They have lost control of the one thing that makes a nation sovereign, their borders, and who wins the right to live there. This was a wake-up call to some of the EU nations while others just accepted it as a new reality like the frog in the kettle proverb. Nobody really saw this outcome coming, even though the EU politicians had always intended this transfer of power and more to themselves. 
As a result, a couple of years ago, the British people voted to leave the EU, as many now understand the downside of the EU and the real goal of the EU leadership, to end the concept of nations in Europe as we know them today. Bottom line. How do I tell you all this? Something like this is likely what's going to happen to install the Antichrist as king of the world. A gradual shifting of power to a world governing body and an accompanying lack of national, national sovereignty is the hope of a growing number of people and their leaders. These ten national leaders, ten kings, in Revelation 17, the ten horns of the beast, will naively think that by installing their man, the Antichrist, at the top of a one-world government, a man whom they intend to control, that they'll have a stooge to do their will. He will almost immediately turn the tables on them. So as of verse 14 in Revelation 17, these ten kings and the beast, why they're a team. They're working together to rule the world. And it is said that they will determine to go to war against the Lamb. Now we discussed this in an earlier lesson, but it bears repeating. Don't, don't get this mental picture of an, of an Antichrist figure with two horns hidden under a beautiful head of hair and a forked tail neatly tucked inside his tailor-made trousers. Nor think of the combined armies of several nations going to battle against a heavenly army of ghost-like souls and our Messiah riding a white horse across the skies. This will be a war, just like all previous wars, humans against humans fought for a political reason. It's only that they don't understand the spiritual power behind it all. And clearly by saying that the armies of the world will be fighting the Lamb can only mean that those living humans who follow and trust the Lamb, Messiah Yeshua, will be fighting against those living humans who follow and trust the beast, the Antichrist. And their identification, oh, it's so simple. Those with 666 written on their bodies belong to Satan. Those who refuse the mark belong to God. break away for a moment now in order to talk a little bit more about these ten kings in order to do this we need to turn to the book of Daniel so please open your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 7 book of Daniel chapter 7 if you have a complete Jewish Bible that is page 1109 1109. We're going to read the whole chapter. Very pertinent to what we're studying. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, Babel, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he was lying on his bed and he wrote the dream down. And this is his account. I had a vision at night and I saw there before me the four winds of the sky breaking out over the great sea and four huge animals came up out of the sea, each different from the others. Now the first was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. And as I watched, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted off the earth, made to stand on two feet like a man and a human heart was given to it. Then there was another animal, a second one like a bear. And it raised itself up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and gorge yourself with flesh. And after this I looked and there was another one, like a leopard, with four bird's wings on its sides. The animal also had four heads and was given the power to rule. And after this I looked in the night visions and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible extremely strong, with great iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left. Now it was different from all the animals that had gone before it, and it had ten horns. Now while I was considering the horns, another horn sprang up among them, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. In this horn were eyes, like human eyes, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. And as I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands and thousands ministered to him. Millions and millions stood before him. And then the court was convened and the books were opened, and I kept watching. And then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed. The body was destroyed, it was given over to be burned up completely. Now as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a time and a season. And I kept watching the night visions, and when I saw coming forth the clouds of heaven, someone like a son of man. He approached the Ancient One, and he was led into his presence, and to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom, so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now as for me, Daniel... My spirit deep within me was troubled. The visions in my head frightened me. I approached one of those standing by. I asked him what all this really meant. He said that he'd make me understand how to interpret these things. Now the four huge animals are four kingdoms that will arise on earth, but the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what the fourth beast meant. The one that was different from all the others. So very terrifying. With iron teeth and bronze nails which devoured and crushed and stamped his feet on what was left. And what those ten horns on its head meant. And the other horn which sprang up and before which three fell. The horn that had eyes, a mouth speaking arrogantly. It seemed greater than the others. And I watched. And that horn made war with the Holy Ones and was winning till the Ancient One came. 
judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High and the time came for the holy ones to take over the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. Now, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and yet another will arise after them. He will speak words against the Most High. He'll try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he will be stripped of his rulership, which will be consumed and completely destroyed. Then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey them. This is the end of the account. Now as for me, Daniel, my thoughts frightened me so much I turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. I want to say up front, the fourth beast of Daniel with the ten horns is indeed relevant to the beast of Revelation chapter 17 with the ten horns. However, they're not a precise one-for-one comparison. See, despite the rather standard church doctrine that the fourth beast of Daniel is the same one upon which the harlot rides is, is, is the same one as... Uh, let me back up. That the fourth beast of Daniel is the same one that we see in chapter 17 upon which the harlot uh, rides. It can't be so. Why not? Because Daniel's fourth beast, while it does have ten horns, it has only one head. John's beast has seven heads to go with its ten horns. can't be the same. Looking a little closer, however, we see that if we add up all the heads, all the horns of Daniel's four beasts, guess what we wind up with? Seven heads and ten horns. So it's my contention that John's beast of Revelation 17 is an amalgamation of all four of Daniel's beasts. So John's beast carries with it the characteristics of all of Daniel's beasts. Some that are common among them, some that might be unique to each of them. And what is most common is that the general territories that each of these four beasts lords over, they're very similar. It's an area all around the Mediterranean Sea, North Africa, the Middle East, very same area, much the same areas. Essentially, each of these succeeding kingdoms took the former kingdom's territories away from them. It was mostly just an exchange of governments over these territories. It was just a transfer of power and territory. Their goals and aims were generally the same. A Gentile government ruling over as much of the known world as they could conquer and hold. 
Now Daniel 7 tells us in verse 8 that in addition to the ten horns, another one suddenly sprang up, a little one. But accompanying the rise of this new eleventh horn, ten plus one, three of the original existing ten were plucked out and discarded. So let's do some quick math. Ten horns plus the new little one equals eleven horns. Then three horns are removed. Eleven minus three equals eight. And since the symbolism that horns equal kings in the Bible, then we wind up with seven original kings plus a special eighth one. This corresponds perfectly to Revelation 17, to the Revelation 17 passage that says that there were seven heads representing seven kings, but another one arises later to give us eight. And yet, while horns in the Bible typically represent kings, mountains typically represent governments or kingdoms. So going back to the statement in Revelation 17 about the seven heads representing seven mountains, that I think we can now better see the connection of the heads of the beast with the horns of the beast. They work together in the end times, but no earlier. Only in the end times. That is, the ten horns of Revelation plus the beast are the same as the ten horns plus the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. And they show a progression of how these governments and kings are going to get established and work together. Now in relation to our time, not John's time, our modern time, 2019, seven kingdoms have already come and gone. They're history. The Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Media, Persian, Greek, Roman, and Ottoman. These are the seven heads of John's beast, said to represent seven mountains, mountains representing kingdoms. And yet, one of the seven heads representing that seventh kingdom will somehow sort of, I don't know, reincarnate or something at a later time and become an eighth. So now after discussing the symbolism of the seven heads, now the ten horns of John's beast comes into play. And these ten horns are said by Daniel to be ten kings who live in the day that the beast comes again. And when the beast comes again, it's going to be to rule over an eighth empire. So these ten kings, ten horns, are going to help him accomplish it. So while the kingdoms represented by the seven heads, those are all in the past to us. It's all in the past for us. Those ten kings represented by those ten horns, that's in the future for us. 
Because Daniel 7 tells us that the Antichrist will be an 11th horn, an 11th king, who in the process of coming to power gets rid of three of the original ten kings, so that leaves a grand total of eight. Eight kings, including the Antichrist as the eighth. This again comports with the words of Revelation 17 that an eighth king and an eighth kingdom will arise after the seven kingdoms have come and gone, which they have. And the eighth kingdom is going to have some strong relation to the seventh kingdom of past history for us. So now we see how Daniel 7 and Revelation 17 work together and how the seven heads and ten horns of the Revelation 17 beast connect with the four beasts and ten horns of Daniel 7. And how the seven heads... and Catch this. This is so important. The seven heads are mostly about the past for us. But the ten horns... That's mostly about the future for us. The end, that's, they come in the end times. Now, I know this is complicated. And I know that as the decades move by, something could change. Or bring us new information that we just don't have today. And I admittedly could alter my conclusion. But as of 2019, this is how I see it. Now I want to make another connection. Back in Revelation 17.10 we read this. Five have fallen, one is living now, the other is yet to come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. Now the phrase we want to look at is a little while. I told you last time that the seventh kingdom is the Ottoman Empire, but the major challenge to my contention is the Bible says it would only last a little while. Well, the Ottoman kingdom lasted for centuries, even after it defeated the remainder of the Roman Empire. Now, many scholars I have consulted also find the phrase, a little while, pretty difficult, because it's so indeterminate and ambiguous. In fact, the Greek word used is oligos, and it can mean a few, it can mean a little, it can mean small. It can be used as an adjective or an adverb. See, usually the Greek Bible passages use the word micron when the reference is to time, as many interpreters take it to mean in our passage. So in Daniel 7.8, the description of the horn that springs up among the existing ten is as a little one, a little horn in size compared to the other ten horns of Daniel's beast. But the same horn in Revelation is said to last a little while. At least that's the consensus of most Bible scholars. So the term little has some role in all this. But it's just not clear to me what it's trying to tell us. Is it speaking of a short time? Is it speaking of a small stature? Is it speaking of a little of little as like the opposite of great, great and little? 
Is it speaking of humble beginnings? Is it speaking of the amount of time or territory or something that is in relation to similar things that preceded? I don't know. But since I don't know what it's getting at, then I'm not going to assume that it means the seventh kingdom must only exist for a very short time, but rather it means something else. Now the final part of verse 14 does make it clear that real, alive human beings are going to be fighting on the side of good and righteousness against the forces of the Antichrist. These are believers in Yeshua. No other category of people other than believers can combine the epithet of called, chosen, and faithful. These are not Jews in general or Gentiles in general. These believers will come from both communities. And these believers are saying that in Christ's strength and under his leadership, they will overcome Satan and his forces. Now, overcome is a purely redemptive term. And it means to conquer evil and sin. So since the souls of believers in heaven have already overcome, then the army of believers that are going to battle the Antichrist on planet Earth will also now have to overcome in a replay of the battle against Satan that already happened in heaven. We read about it some chapters back. Now in verse 15 we learn that the waters where the woman on the beast is sitting symbolically represents all humanity. Now recall that the beast is the name for the sea beast that emerged from the waters uh, earlier in Revelation. So then we hear of a very interesting turn of events. And I, I, I think what this is going to mean is already becoming evident in our day. We are told that the ten horns of the beast, those ten kings, will turn against the woman, against the harlot, Babylon the Great, the wicked world system, in order to bring her to ruin. To leave her naked means to shame her. To eat her flesh means to take that which she owned. And to consume her with fire means to just utterly destroy her. Now I want you to pause and reflect on this for a minute. Just back away from it. If these ten kings were part and parcel of the wicked world system, like the wealthiest and most powerful nations are today, why would they destroy the very system that brings them their wealth and power? Why would they do that? They wouldn't. Because they're not part of that system. See, in our day, Islam sees the West and our entire system of money and religion and commerce and lifestyle and law and so on and so on as the great Satan. It stands for everything they're against. And it is this that they seek to bring to ruin. 
Fundamentalist Islam wants a complete return to the ways of the ancient times. And while the various Islamic groups fight against one another, they will often temporarily join together to fight representatives of the world system, like the USA and much of the EU. And since the woman on the beast is representative of the wicked world system that's entirely Western in its character, then it says that something about her causes these ten kings to just suddenly attack and destroy her. But since clearly, to begin with, she uses the assets that the beast provides to her per, uh, to her benefit, and they, those kings, use hers, the time's going to come when the beast and the kings don't want her, don't need her any longer. I believe, from the vantage point of today, that those ten kings are going to be leaders of Islamic nations or perhaps kings that support Islamic goals and ideals. And by definition, the woman, Babylon the Great, represents the secular Western world, as well as the corrupt, faithless, religious world of that part of institutional Christianity that has just forsaken God's ways and has instead adopted the ways of the wicked world system. And as says verse 17, the treachery of these ten kings is because it's God who put it in their hearts to hate Babylon the Great in order that they would serve as a judgment upon her. Destroying the woman is only going to strengthen the grip of the beast over the world. But this is just going to last for a short time. Chapter 18, which we'll start next week, speaks of the moment of her collapse that we have now learned will be at the hands of the beast and of those ten kings. You know, it's always been amazing to me how God will use one group of wicked people to punish and judge another group of wicked people, and then finally He'll judge the survivors. Supernaturally. I mean, it may be difficult to spot this as this principle is in operation, but there's no doubt that this principle didn't end with the close of the Old Testament. Next up, Revelation chapter 18.